Peter's message. Before we start, though, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can fellowship in the text uh, together. Lord, help us this morning as we hear this this very important passage that we will understand the true import of the passage. And I pray, Lord, you will help us not to merely look at it, again, as historical, but that we will hear the gospel here. And that we will hear the gospel in such a way that it will spiritually impact our lives and transform us even today. Because the message that Peter presents here is every bit as important in my life and in all of our lives as it was in that day on the day of Pentecost. So, Lord, I pray you'll open our ears to hear it. And I pray, Lord, that you'll draw us close and that your spirit will be working as you promised to in our lives. Help us to see this text as not merely words on a page, but they're your word and they're your communication. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us to know you and understand. In your name I pray. Amen. So, Acts chapter 2, this morning we will be looking at um, verse 22. And we will make it down through verse 36, Lord willing. But I would like to start in verse 17 in our reading, and then we'll work on the actual passage that we're looking at this morning. Actually, I I would like to start in verse 14, sorry. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah and all who are Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dream, shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, on, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, then, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by sign, by, I'm sorry, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, 
and of that we are we are we all are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured out uh, uh, this uh, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not ascend into the heavens but he himself said the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies your footstool let all the house of israel know or therefore know before for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I'm going to read to the end of the end of the section, but we're going to stop there in our message this morning. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone from whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked and, and wicked, or I'm sorry, this, this crooked generation. So those who received his, this, or his word were baptized and added that day about 3,000 souls. So here we have uh, this middle section of Peter's message. We're again looking at the middle of the message because it continues, but obviously, if we, as we just read, there's a significant shift after, uh, after the passage we're looking at this morning because suddenly it goes from a monologue to a dialogue, doesn't it? We're going to pick up on that one next week. But I would argue his message continues in the midst of that dialogue uh, that we'll see next week, Lord willing. But in today's text, we have the center section, which is going to tie the previous section to it very carefully and very, very tightly. So we're going to reference that, as I said earlier. Uh, I, I've looked at this passage for many years. I mean, who among us doesn't know the, the story of the day of Pentecost? We've known it for many of us for decades. Um, but it, it, it hasn't been till recently that the true import of the text started to become apparent to me. Because I think the text that we have in our presence this morning has in incredible, immense import and power. In fact, I would argue that what we're going to see in the text this morning will demonstrate what I've been saying all along is the flaw of Christianity, one of the, probably if not the primary, one of the primary flaws of Christianity. And not only just Christianity in general, but one of the flaws of our understanding of the gospel and the presentation of the gospel and the import and power of the gospel. So if I would just say this real quickly before we get into the text, uh, this should be no news for you, no news, news for you, but I want to say it anyway. Too often we hear the gospel being presented in this way. A simple, first of all, you, you realize you sinned, right? And people say, if they're listening to what you said at all, they say, yeah, okay, whatever. And you, and you respond, you say, you tell them about Jesus Christ and his crucifixion for your sin. And then we move on and we talk about, next we need to what? Accept him to be our Savior, right? Our Savior. And sometimes we even throw that word in, our Lord and Savior. But there's really no explanation what that means, is there? Right? 
You talk to an unsaved person, you talk to them, you say you need to accept them to be your Savior, and then what we do next is we typically have, oftentimes in Christianity, we say, so what you need to do is what? Pray this prayer, right? It's classic, isn't it? Pray this prayer. And then we pray, and we lead them in a prayer, and they repeat it after us. I'm just, it's not a caricature. It's all over the place, isn't it? I'm not, I just want you to be aware, I'm not making a caricature. And so we pray a prayer with them, and they repeat it. I'm a sinner. I confess my sins. And I ask you to be my Savior, to save me and take me to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Or some form of the same, correct? Can I just say this real quickly? In that brief explanation... If I may be blunt, nothing has been said. Nothing has been taught. Nothing has been explained. If I could just submit to you that what has basically been said is probably a close cousin to nothing. It's vacuous. It's empty. What Peter does here in this text if we're not careful, it will sound exactly what I just described. But it is not. It is not even close. I've read the text. We're going to wander through the text. And we're going to hear some of the points. But there's only be one main point I'm going to point out to you. I'm going to point out a variety of things that are important to see. But in this text, I'm only going to point out one main thing. And let me just say, it is the main thing of the text. It is said by Peter repeatedly. And if you understand where the Jews that are listening to this from Judea and Samaria that he's specifically addressing, they would have immediately gotten it. But we have ignored its meaning or perhaps never been taught its meaning and its import. The main part of the text, obviously the main part is Jesus, right? I mean, put that out there. But what he says about Jesus is so important. So let's wander through it, and we are going to wander some. Starting in verse 22, men of Israel, he's talking to who? The people from Judea and, and, and uh, Jerusalem. Those close to the temple. We, we talked about that last, last week. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. And then he goes through a, what is basically a history lesson, correct? Doesn't he? A man attested to you by God. And then he tells them several things. By mighty works, wonders, and signs that God did through him in your midst. So, let me just stop. Again, this is not the main point. It's just one of the points that is really important. What did Peter just do? It's really important. What did he just do? Well, he's, you're going to see this dramatically. He's going to, throughout the thing, connect it to the Old Testament. Absolutely. And what, what God prophesied would happen, as well as what God did, no question. But he says here something very simple in one short little statement. All he does is remind them, doesn't he? Isn't that just a reminder? 
Did you hear it? Let me read it again. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. That last phrase, as you yourself know, tells us that he's merely doing what? Reminding them of what they already know. They were there. Remember, they're from Judea and Jerusalem, which means for three years they heard and saw, and many of them, if not most of them, probably followed him during this time. As a matter of fact, many, if not most of them, are the ones who were saying what? Give us a sign. Do a miracle. Which means they knew he was doing it. But being from Jerusalem and Judea, they would have been reminded continually of the, of the statements in the Old Testament. That the Messiah was going to be this way. Now why is that important? Because although the people in Judea and, and, and Jerusalem saw it, which means he says to them, as you well know, Today, what? Have you seen Jesus do signs and miracles and wonders? Well, no. It was then, right? When he was on the planet. He, when he was on, on earth. When he was in Israel. He was wandering around doing all these things. Showing, validating who he is. As they knew. So, for Peter, it's a really short little blurb, isn't it? Because in a very real way, what Peter's doing is he's merely priming the pump. All of it's still already there. Not, is it, not only, can I just say this real quick? Not only is it all there with regard to what Jesus actually did, but Peter doesn't even bother to go through the, the vast repository of all the messianic declarations in the Old Testament. He doesn't do that, does he? He just goes to a couple, doesn't he? We'll see a few today. We saw one last week. But my goodness, Isaiah by itself, chapter 7, chapters 39 through 66, are all about Christ as well as interspersed throughout the rest of Isaiah. That's just one book. <laughs> Psalms. Are Psalms not dripping Jesus Christ? It's everywhere, isn't it? Now, for, for the people of Judea and Jerusalem, all Peter has to do is prime the pump, right? Because they have a vast knowledge of the Old Testament. They need the Spirit, too, of course. The reason why I bring this up as an important, although not the main point, is because today, how many people in the world know anything at all about Jesus other than Christmas and Easter? Those two stories. Not much, right? Not much. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of people, even in America, when it comes even to Christmas and Easter, especially Christmas, they don't even know really much about Jesus at all, even about Christmas today. Easter, 
But what do most people know about Easter for the most part? Bunnies! Right? And eggs! And for the vast majority of once you step outside of our America, what do you have? Even less knowledge, right? What I'm trying to say in this first verse of Peter's message, oh, I'm sorry, I missed one thing I wanted to say. When it comes to Christendom, if I may just say this, it's not much better. It's not much better. Really isn't. A little bit, not much. Peter presumed that the hearers knew, they observed, they saw Jesus perform miracles, signs, wonders. They saw it. And even the things they didn't see, everyone was talking about it. Scriptures tell us that was the case. I mean, my goodness. They were following him all over, all over Jerusalem and Judea. Everywhere he went, people, throngs of people were following him. Until the last couple of days before his crucifixion. And somehow we think, when we tell someone the gospel, that we can throw out a little cute sales pitch. And somehow that's all that's needed. <laughs> you understand what I'm trying to say? Our world has no knowledge of who Jesus is today to our shame. Our world, our neighborhood, our neighbors, our co-workers. They have little knowledge of anything. You talk to your loved ones, probably, have little knowledge. And you tell them, I love Jesus, that means nothing to them except that you're kind of religious and strange. See, for Peter, what I'm trying to get to here in verse 22, what we find Peter doing is simply laying a knowledge base. Is that what he's doing? He's laying out a knowledge base. How can we receive Jesus as our Savior if we don't know who Jesus is? That's silliness. That doesn't make any sense. If we, could be, if we could be saved apart from the revelation of this book, you follow me? Then we don't need this. <laughs> but we cannot be saved apart from the knowledge of this book. Can't. That's why Peter starts off by saying, you know this. You know all of this. I'm going to connect some dots for you in a little bit, is what Peter's basically saying. And if God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in you, then the dots that I'm going to connect for you, the dots that you already know, the dots that I'm going to connect for you are what the Spirit's going to use to save you if the Spirit's at work in you. Today, people don't have the dots. And we're trying to connect dots that don't exist if we're sharing the gospel at all. 
which is kind of weird if you really think it through. So, that, again, that's just, it's not an aside, it's important, but it's not the main point, but I wanted you to see that. He goes on, verse 23, Peter says, this Jesus, this Jesus, what Jesus? The Jesus they know. See, Peter at this point in time is, is doing what? He's pointing them to the Jesus they what? Not yet. He's going to do it in just a second. The Jesus they They've observed. That's a great word. I was going to say no. I like observe a lot better. They have knowledge of. This Jesus. In other words, the people are not allowed to create a Jesus in here, are they? In their mind. See, that's what we do. We talk to people about Jesus and we assume that they'll be able to, they have the dots to connect. This Jesus, this one that you all know, the one that you watched, the one you heard, the one who spoke, the one who performed miracles, the one who you followed all over the place, and you heard about this Jesus. There's only one. You can't create your own understanding. He's a historical, factual figure. He existed. This Jesus... Can I just say, if we're going to tell the unsaved people about Jesus, we best be telling them about Jesus. If you want to see your neighbor, your loved one, your, your, your friend, your, your co-worker, you want to see them saved, they need to know who Jesus is. The gospel is summed up in, see, we think the gospel is, you're a sinner and you need to be saved so you can go to heaven. And so you got to accept Jesus to be your Savior. No, the gospel is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the gospel. What people need to know more than anything else is Jesus. Now they can't, or observe, good term, Tim, understand who Jesus is. Because then the, the declaration of their lostness, and the declaration of what Christ accomplished, if the Spirit's at work, does what? Connects the dots. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I want to stop on 23 real quickly. He says, this Jesus, I want you to notice two things that he presents here which are really eye-opening and shocking. Did you catch both of them? First, and most importantly, what does it say? Peter says, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was not left to chance. This was all by God's plan. Did you hear it there? Definite plan. God's plan had it laid out step by step by step for Christ, Jesus, to be crucified on a tree. Yet at the same time, in verse 23, it doesn't deny at all, Peter does not deny the truth of the matter is that God uses means, correct? He uses means. 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Referencing, of course, the Romans. So you have God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in one verse right here, don't you? By his definite plan and foreknowledge, this Jesus was crucified. Oh, by the way, you, by the hands of lawless men, did what? Crucified him. So, right in the midst of this gospel presentation, you have both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. We must not miss both of them. We could spend all day on that one. We will pass at this point in time. Have fun thinking through those ramifications. They are dramatic. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now stop on verse 24. This Jesus, fold verse 23 into it. This Jesus God raised up. Fold verse 22 in. This Jesus who you all know. You observed him doing all these signs and miracles and wonders from God, establishing the reality of his Messiahship. This Jesus, by God's plan and your activity, this Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, remember, Jesus, after his resurrection, did what? For 40 days, what did he do? He appeared to people, didn't he? He appeared to a boatload of people, didn't he? And he taught the disciples. And verse 24, what Peter says, is God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it's not possible for him to be held by it. Now it's interesting when he gets to the resurrection because Jesus didn't reveal himself to as many people after the resurrection as he did before he was crucified, right? I mean, not even close. So what does Peter do with regard to the resurrection? Peter does what? He goes to the scriptures. And appropriately so. Now what if I may use his example of going to the scriptures and say this real quickly, you want to speak the gospel to people? The best way to speak the gospel and the only way to speak the gospel is what? Preaching the scriptures. Proclaiming the scriptures. That's what Peter does. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what the Old Testament prophets did. That's what James and John they all did it, didn't they? What does is, what is, uh, Peter do here? God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And it's interesting what he does in 24. He concludes 24 by saying what? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it, which I would argue carries two points. On the one hand, it was not possible. Why? Because, because he is God. And the living God cannot be contained by death. Does that make sense? But I think that's a minor point here, although true. The point that Peter is making is much more significant than that. Well, not more significant, but much more poignant in this case. He says it was not possible for him to be held by death 
Verse 25, for David says concerning him. That's an important point that's got to be connected to this idea that death could not hold him. Why couldn't death hold him there? Why not? Here's why. Because it was prophesied that he wouldn't be able to be held by death. That's the point. The Old Testament prophesied, and Peter is going to drive this point home, the Old Testament prophesied about Jesus, that he would not be held by death, but quite to the contrary, he would arise. And so it's not possible. Peter is declaring, it's not possible for him to have stayed in de at death, in the grave. Why? Because what God says is always true. Because God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. And he promised, he declared that the Messiah, when he'd come, he would not remain in the grave. So for Peter, it's like, of course. <laughs> It's interesting that Peter here does not try to use any cute arguments to prove resurrection. Where does he go? Scripture. He goes to the Scripture. And you know what Peter's perspective is? He trusts that the Spirit is powerful and that he will work. What do people need to hear? The Scripture. So what does Peter do? He quotes David in Psalm chapter 16. David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I, might not, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Uh, Peter goes on to explain the text then. I just read it to you. Peter goes on to explain the text. I just read it as Peter spoke it. Peter goes on in verse 29 and says what? Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And if you've been to Israel, you know his tomb is still there. So he says, gentlemen, ladies, if you just look around, and if he's in the temple, all you have to do is look over the temple mount, and you can see it right there, David's tomb. I can say to you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried with us in his tomb. Over there, see it? Over the wall, right there, is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, David was, described in the Old Testament as a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. And by the way, you notice I'm doing a lot of reading of the text over and over again. You know why? Because in this inspired text, I, this inspired message, I can do very little better than what he did. <laughs> we need to hear his word. Being therefore a prophet... David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, what Peter is arguing is in this text, verse 25 through 28, is not about, Peter, about David at all. 
It's about his ultimate descendant that will sit on the throne. And what he's saying is that David recognized that, that when he penned this inspired song, that it's not about him, quite to the contrary, it's about the one yet to come, who Peter's arguing has come, his name is Jesus. And David said that he would not see his himself abandoned to Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. Notice what he goes on and says in verse 32, this Jesus, what? God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. I would argue when he says we are all witnesses, probably referring to the ones that are speaking in tongues primarily, although others saw, again, I would not think that all those thousands that would have been hearing would have would have seen him actually because the group that he saw was much smaller. But so the we is probably referring to all those speaking in tongues, maybe some more that are there. <clears throat> we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, referring to his what? His ascension, right? Correct? His ascension being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, referring to what? The coming of the Holy Spirit that is now we call the day of Pentecost, right? He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All these things that you said we were drunk were not, where he started his message. And we're going to stop there at the end of verse 34 or end of verse 33 for a second. You'll notice if you look back at the actual quote from, from David from Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, David says, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Not talking about necessarily being at David's right hand. He's talking about God. He's at God's right hand. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul. Referring to his descendant, his ultimate descendant, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption, the corruption referring to in the grave, the rot that comes when we die. We all know about that, right? You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. In your presence is referring to his ascension. So it talks about his death, but it talks also about his resurrection, and David prophesied also his ascension and his being seated at the right hand of the Father in his presence. At which point in time David then turns to verse 34, another passage out of Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, again, another prophecy David gives about his ultimate descendant, the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And what David is say, what Peter is saying, this prophecy is now fulfilled in this Jesus. Which Jesus? What Jesus? This Jesus that you saw do all these miracles and signs and wonders. This same Jesus who you, are, first of all, who by God's sovereign plan, specific plan, you, and for knowledge, you crucified this Jesus. 
is the same Jesus who you crucified, but who also rose again, who also ascended, and who also now, I want you to know, Peter says to the to these people, these thousands of people who are there, is now seated until what? What does it say? Until all enemies, all Jesus' enemies, it's really important, all Jesus' enemies are made into your, what? Footstool. Footstool. It's a place of humility. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of condemnation. He goes on in verse 36 and says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Know this for certain, he says to them. Those who saw Jesus, who saw the signs, the miracles, the wonders, who heard Him preach, who heard Him teach, who cried crucify Him, who have heard about His resurrection and maybe even some saw His resurrection, who now, by Peter, hear about His what? Ascension. Correct? His ascension who hear the simple raw data. He ascended back to the Father, who hear now for the first time that he that, that Psalm 110 is applied to this same Jesus. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father until, and yet, and that means there's coming a day when all Jesus, what? Enemies will be, be assured, Peter is saying, will be come his footstool. Do you hear that? 36. Let all the house of Israel who know all that now have heard the entire declaration, the connection with the Old Testament, the connection with the Scriptures, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This, what? Jesus, whom you crucified. Oh, not even close. And it's going to get a lot more uncomfortable in just a second. That's Peter's gospel declaration. It has a lot of data, doesn't it? it? Has a lot of information about who Jesus is. A lot of declarations. Now, he didn't have to go through all the the laundry list about who Jesus was in his public ministry because they saw it. Later on, Paul is going to spend a lot of time talking about this Jesus. To people like, like the people in Corinth and Colossae and Philippi and everywhere else he goes, we'll see it throughout the book of Acts. He's going to talk a lot about who Jesus actually is and all the things he did and all the rest of it. He's going to talk about that stuff. But for these people, he didn't need to. But he did need to explain to them really clearly how he fulfilled the what? The Old Testament prophecies. They, he did need to connect those dots for them. He, did, he needed to remind them of the prophecies. He chose just a few. But he needed to remind them of the prophecies and showed clearly how Jesus matches those 
prophecies. And then he explains to them the fact of his resurrection. The fact of his ascension. And the reality that today he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he had to tell them what? And explain to them, purely and simply through a statement that they already knew. Psalm 110, verse 1. Again, no explanation, right? He didn't really give any explanation about this enemy's your footstool, right? He just quoted it, didn't he? Why? Because he didn't need to go any further than that, because they knew the text. And they knew what it meant. All they needed to be done is, is have the dots connected. Can I just say it again? People don't know about this. People don't know about this. They need to have it explained today. We're talking about the gospel. They need to have it explained. What? Explain what? Well, they need to have it explained that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. They need to have it explained that he's seated until what? Until all his enemies are made into his footstool. Oh, by the way, they need to have it explained that they're his... What? Okay, if you don't know, that's scary. There's enemy. Right? They need that explained. There's enemy. That's what people need today. They need to have all this explained. The idea, the ludicrousness of thinking that presenting the gospel is just like simple. Here's three verses. Why don't you pray and ask a prayer? Ask Jesus to be to save you. Is is frankly, it's kind of ludicrous. But here's the most important thing. I haven't even touched on the one major thing that's in this text. And this is the absolute essential thing that Peter is driving towards that is missing in our discussion of the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel, saved and unsaved. I want to show it to you. It's found in several places in the text. First, in last week's message. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's number one. Number two is verse 25. <clears throat> For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. <clears throat> and then it shows up again. Um, In verse 34, <clears throat> for David did not say, did not ascend into heaven, in the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you, whom you crucified. What is the, the, the point that out of all those verses that is, is, is showing up? What's the, what's the constant theme through every one of those verses? Or maybe theme's the wrong word. Let me help you. What's the one word that keeps showing up in every one of those verses? Lord. Lord is what shows up in every one of those verses. 
Notice again, verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. Um, verse 36, uh, verse 35, the Lord said to my Lord, verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God had ma has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. Four times, Jesus referred to as Lord. Now, in the Jewish mindset in that day, there's no explanation needed about that statement. But there is today. Because that word carries immense weight. And when we think about the gospel, I've got to tell you something. This word carries the absolute essence of the gospel. And we need to understand this. And it's important enough that Peter mentions it four times. Now, first of all, he mentions Lord and Christ, the last one, right? Lord and Christ. Christ refers to what? Chosen one or Messiah, right? Messiah, Christ, Messiah, chosen one, Redeemer. The Redeemer is a corollary to it, but you get the idea. He's a, he's, he's a Messiah. But he says four different times, Lord. And so I want to look specifically at 21 and 36. 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To the Jew, again, to the Jewish mindset, when you hear the word Lord, it was a common word. It was throughout the, the Greek Septuagint that they would use in their worship services in this day. The word Lord showed up everywhere. It was very commonly used in, even in extra-biblical uh, literature and, and just in common Living life, the word, the Greek word kurios for Lord was used all the time. So the people in Jesus' day would understand the important import of the word. Today we don't. We hear Lord. The best thing we can do is we think of over in England, right? You know, that type of thing. Or we, read, we read the word in the scriptures. But to the Jews, when he says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This same Jesus you crucified. That word Lord on both sides of this is gigantic. Because the word Lord has the idea of master. Authority, preeminence, power. That's what it means. That's what the Jews would have understood. So in a very real way, verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the sovereign authority Everyone who calls on the name of the Master. Everyone who calls upon the name of the preeminent one shall be saved. Now, that word, Lord, carries weight. 
the idea of salvation is this idea, verse 21, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, means I acknowledge what? He is the preeminent one. He is the authority of my life. He is my master. And you know when the word Lord was most used, even in Jewish days, was in relation to master and slave. So when Peter says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, it is not, it doesn't carry any even hint to this idea that I just need Jesus to forgive my sins <laughs> and prepare a place for me. And that's pretty cool. That's not what it means. It means I acknowledge that He is my Master. I acknowledge at this point in time that I have been in rebellion against Kyrios, Lord. I have been in rebellion and I have hated and I have despised and I have rejected the Lord Christ. And I have gone my own way, but I acknowledge, I agree, I embrace that He is my preeminent one. That He is my Master. That He is my authority. Now, do you sense that there are some really significant ramifications to this? Do you? There are, aren't there? That gospel has significant ramifications. Could I just say this? Ramifications that I can't accomplish. I can't be that. That's why next week we're going to see he's, he tells them that he's going to give them their spirit. Is it God's Spirit? Right? And all the ramifications of that are going to be developed later on by Paul. What that means. But in verse 36, when he says, Let all house of Israel know, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. What do you mean, made him both Lord and Christ? What does that mean? Well, that's a direct reference back to Matthew 28. When he said in Matthew 28, all authority, all power, sound like Lord stuff, doesn't it? Doesn't it? All authority, all power has been given to me. Who, who gave it to him? The Father did. All authority, all power has been given unto me. And as a result of that, as you're going, what? Make disciples. Well, Great. Now we're out of Acts 2, but Matthew 28 really is a compliment to Acts chapter 2 because when Jesus says, All authority, all power has been given unto me, as you're going, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and Lord, I'll be with you always. Who's going with them always? The one who has all power and all authority. And so, what does it mean to make disciples? It may, what it means is help people to realize. Proclaim to people the one who has all authority, all power. Proclaim to the one to the one you're talking to 
He's Lord. What does he mean? He's saying, in effect, what Jesus was saying there is what Peter is fleshing out here in this gospel presentation, this is what it looks like to be what? Making disciples. He's declaring to them, this is who Jesus is. He is the one with all authority, with all power. And then he wraps up this section by saying, he's the one you crucified. He's the one you crucified. Now I've got to tell you something. That's a pretty powerful message, isn't it? That's a potent message. But it's a message that's dripping truth. Did Jesus come to save people from their sins? Oh yeah, absolutely. Did people come to save people so they so they come to heaven? Yeah. Yeah. But he came to redeem a people unto himself. He came and called a people to Him. Our task is to tell people about Him. But our task before then, and much more important, is to know Him. That's the point. <laughs> Know him according to what God says about him. What the Father declares and the Spirit has revealed in the Scriptures. This is who Jesus is. And the ramifications of the Gospel are dramatic here, aren't they? Because if we're truly recipients of salvation, what does that mean? It means whereas before I was in rebellion to him, now I am what? I'm slave to him, aren't I? You know what it means? Before I rejected him, now he's my master. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, I long for him to be my master. I desire more than anything else for him to be my master. And when I fail and I sin, which I do, I come rushing back to my master, the preeminent one. The Redeemer. The Messiah. The authority. Abba Father. And he graciously receives us, doesn't he? Doesn't he? That's who Jesus is. This idea that somehow we could be saved, but he's not our master, not our authority. It's foreign to the scriptures. Absolutely foreign. And too often we have believed a caricature of Christ. Believed a caricature of Christianity. And what Peter does here, strongly and powerfully and clearly 
says this is who Christ is. This is what was declared in the Old Testament. This is who Christ, who Christ is who fulfilled that. This is Christ who was crucified by you. Offensive. This is, and he brings up twice. This is Christ who died at your hand. This is Christ who could not be held in the grave. But he rose again, according to the scriptures. This is Christ who ascended and is now seated at the right hand of God, according to the scriptures. This is Christ who is staying at the right hand of the Father until he makes all enemies his footstool. Oh, and by the way, apart from him being our authority, our sovereign, our preeminent one, our authority, we are his enemy. We desperately need a redeemer. Amen? And that, my friends, is the gospel. What I need today to be reminded of because you know what I do too often? I deceive myself into thinking I am my own, my own authority, my own power, my own preeminent one, which is nothing more than saying my own Savior. That's what we do, don't we? And you know why we do? Because we really, if I may say it again, we've caricaturized who Christ is. And we don't really know. So, can I just say, God help us. Help us to know. As you said in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. I pray, Lord, you will help us to know for certain who Christ is, who Jesus is, both Lord and Christ, and what the ramifications of all that is. We can only do this by your spirit. We can only do this, understand this, because you are at work in us. So, Lord, I pray that you will move. We are absolutely impotent to comprehend these things ourselves. I pray that you will help us to come to the point that the people will come as we see next week, that we will cry out, what must we do? And we will hear, repent and believe. The answer is always the same. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen.